The Germans are well known for discipline and structure. Peter Sagan, known for charisma and wheelies. In 2017, the two will come together. We would prefer he doesn't go around uh, pinching podium girls. But if they eliminated all of his personality and what makes him a lively guy to watch, they would be doing so to their own detriment. In our Gearhead segment, we take a look at a lesser-known leader in carbon and a better-known brand that features titanium. The best way to describe a nicely made titanium bike these days is it feels a lot like a nice steel bike, um, but it has more backbone to it. Line, the podcast on two wheels, the show that says if the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, just avoid it. Take the long and confusing route, which is the one we prefer. The pace line strongly supported by the fatcyclist.com and its chief of operations, Fatty. Hi there. <laughs> Fatty? <laughs> Hello. When Uh-oh. Uh, Fatty has gone abroad again on us, folks. He is uh, in Ireland again, uh, discovering, I think, what may be his new roots, uh, the Irish countryside. Uh, yeah, Fatty, uh, not with us today on uh, the play, uh, pace line, uh, that is. Uh, again, in Ireland, where a pint is much easier to find than a decent uh, Wi-Fi connection. So we are without Fatty. But uh, not without a bona fide Irishman, or at least someone with an Irish-sounding name, and that would be Patrick Brady of Red Kite Prayer. You are Irish, aren't you, Patrick? Man, if I don't claim my Irish fruits, my father will kill me. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a great name, the, the Brady name. We, we, have you been to Ireland? Uh, <laughs> oops. Uh, no. Um, no? Been trying. Been trying. Yeah. Hasn't happened yet. Well, from our last report, too, the... From Fatty, when he was last there, he came back. He said that the, the cycling there is is uh, not the the stuff we're used to. In other words, he doesn't see a lot of racer types. But a lot of folks bike commute there and get around by bike, and that's saying something considering the amount of rain that country gets. So, well, and it's not warm rain either. No, <laughs> no. no, not at all. You you, you got to had mad determines to to be a bike commuter in, in you know cold and damp. Right, right. Um, Love you, Denmark. Right. Fatty will be back. Hopefully, uh, next should be back next week, in fact. Um, uh, some uh, a big uh, racing news going on right now, uh, Patrick. First of all, the reaction to Lizzie Armistead's, Armistead's case, that is, has been pretty strong, with many of her competitors upset about the outcome of her case. Duh. The current women's road world champ missed three anti-doping tests over the past year and was facing a four-year ban, including a no-trip to Rio to the Olympic Games. But the Court of Arbitration for Sport ruled in her favor, clearing the way for the Brit to compete. Armistead blamed her first missed test on an official just failing to ask the right questions of a hotel receptionist so her room could be called. That missed test was actually expunged from her record when she appealed. Uh, the second mistest was right after um, her world championship win in Richmond. She said she had a lot of things going on and just failed to inform doping control of her whereabouts. And then the third she blamed on a, on a quote, family emergency, but she would not say what that emergency was. But it was only after she'd missed the third test that she decided to challenge the first 10 months after she was informed of the whereabouts failure. She could have, of course, challenged that one Immediately, and that's what's raising a lot of the, the craziness, the speculation here that something uh, was amiss. Uh, by the way, WADA has made it much easier for athletes to report their whereabouts. Each athlete has a web page they can update. Uh, their agent can handle it for them. There's a GPS system for remote situations. Uh, WADA will put up with, with three missed tests in a 12-month period before sanctions are issued. Faced with that, Armistead clearly... Uh, had to get rid of at least one of her violations, and she did so through an appeal. 
so far, the CAS, it's the Court of Arbitration Sport, uh, has refused to release details of the hearing or who heard her appeal, which they're obligated to do, actually, once the athlete publicly acknowledges the results of that hearing. Uh, British Cycling has acknowledged that they, they helped out their athlete by providing uh, legal advice. Um, but, Patrick, you know, the whole thing comes down to uh, transparency here and whether or not we're getting a good enough look at this case. And I think that's what's upset a lot of her competitors. They feel like, look, she had violations here. Uh, how can we allow her to move forward and compete? Yeah, it's a big problem. I mean, there are people who have ethical issues with the fact that uh, British Cycling helped her. Uh, people think that they ought to be taking a, a more neutral uh position in this. And then there's the fact that, you know, there are a whole lot of people out there, you know, with other nations who think that, you know, British cycling isn't all on the up and up. Uh, And so, you know, Sky being more or less an extension of British cycling, this feeds into their suspicion that something's rotten in Denmark, or maybe we should say London. So I understand why uh, people are upset and suspicious. I will say from a psychological standpoint, you know, just the psychology of a situation that Armistead didn't immediately contest um, that first missed test kind of suggests that she didn't think, you know, this wasn't part of an ongoing strategy. You know, she didn't think it was going to happen again, perhaps. Uh, and so she didn't contest that initial test. It was only after two more stacked up against her that she realized, oh my gosh, I need to defend this. That's one possible view. I'm not saying that it's a view I endorse, but I recognize that people could look at it that way. Mm. I, my personal take is, look, three missed tests, you know, the whole point of banning an athlete or suspending an athlete after three missed tests is because it shows a pattern of evasion. And if we can't trust that you're uh, testing clean and really sufficiently making yourself available for the tests, then you need to go away for a little while. And I, I'm kind of stunned that it, it went this way. I see. Yeah, well, with the Olympics right around the corner, she she needed to react and react fast, and that's exactly what she did. Uh, and we'll now go to Rio and compete for a gold medal. Well, she, she, and she'll certainly be a favorite there, too, for, for the gold in the women's road. Uh, it is August, and that means uh, signings can officially go public. And this rule to me, Patrick, is a little weird that signings well, can't be discussed or revealed until August 1st. Everyone hears what is going on, but nothing is verbalized. Uh, and if you're going to put the muzzle on things, why not just put the no talk rule into effect until, you know, like after the, the race calendar is done? Make things, it kind of makes things a little odd for the Vuelta and Lombardia, Perry Tours, all these remaining races that. You know, you go into these races and now you're looking around at the competitors going, well, he's not going to be on my team next year, but that guy will. And so I think the way they kind of approach this is a little weird. Nonetheless, uh, the big signing, of course, has to be uh, Mr. Sagan or Sagan, depending on how you pronounce that, Peter Sagan, who will race next year for the Bora team, which is dropping, by the way, the Argon portion of its sponsorship and will now be Bora Hansgrohe a uh, German team. Currently, they're a pro-continental team, but with Sagan's Tinkoff and I Am Cycling closing shop, there will be at least two pro tour team slots open, and it would be a shocker if the UCI did not give Bora uh, one of those spots. Uh, Edex Quickstep, Astana had been interested, but probably not interested in the $6.7 million asking price for Peter, who reportedly will get $4.7 million from his new squad, <clears throat> Excuse me. Like we said, Bora is dropping that Argon from its uh, jersey because the squad is switching to specialized bikes. The Morgan Hill Company is in for three years on Bora. Uh, the Big S will now not be under the Astana team. Astana will now ride Argon bikes. Is your head starting to spin here? Um, <laughs> but Astana, <laughs> right? So here we go again. Sagan to Bora, specialized to Bora. Astana no longer unspecialized. Astana no longer has. Vincenzo Nibali, who is now riding for this new squad out of the country of Bahrain. Um, but actually, what I want to hear your input on, Sagan on a German team, I guess this is what struck me. You know, that would mean at least when you're talking about Germans, probably more structure, 
less attitude than he is accustomed to. I mean, with Oleg Tinkoff, personality and individualism came with the owner. Mm-hmm. And so if Ryder had some of that, and Sagan certainly did, then so be it. But the Germans, and I'm stereotyping here, mainly because I'm part German, uh, have a different approach. How do you think they'll react to the wheelies and the mountain bike excursions? And does he does he fit into the German attitude? Well, he's a star, and if they don't indulge him to some degree, um, then this probably won't uh, last all that long. You know, somebody else will swoop in and buy his contract after a single year. Um, you know, it's true, it's or, or maybe not true, it's fair to observe that the German teams are more structured. When I talk to people uh, in the bike industry, you know, who do uh, athlete, uh, athlete work, you know, and, and team sponsorship, every time somebody has worked with the German team, they're like, they're organized, they're methodical. If you show them uh, a particular step that they have to take in setting up a bike, they do it that way, you know, absolutely correctly every time, you know, they'll put calipers on it to make sure they're doing it right. The Belgian teams will do it however they've been doing it all their lives. <laughs> um, you know, I how they deal with athletes is not something I'm as clear on, but... You know, if they try to muzzle him and take all of his character, I mean, sure, he he we we would prefer he doesn't go around uh, pinching podium girls, uh, but you know, if if they eliminated all of his personality and what makes him a lively guy to watch, they would be doing so to their own detriment. Right. So Sagan um, to a new team, and of course off to Rio as well where he will compete in uh, the mountain bike race for gold. Uh, the UCI has added 10 races to its calendar for next year, and the Tour of California will be one of them. Of course, that's great news for the race because it means 10 pro tour teams must be in the race, and that means, of course, the top names in the sport should be in attendance. But uh, there is less room now for the scrappy teams like Axion Hagman's Berman, to get in, and of course, this year they animated the race thanks to young stars like Nielsen Palace. But 10 new uh, dates on the calendar, including the Tour of California, which gets us to the Tour of Utah, um, a stage race that uh, is uh, comes right after the Tour de France and um, usually features mostly uh, domestic teams, uh, but some pro tour teams show up. It's not so much the racing we want to focus on today, Patrick, but the opening stage which was Zion to Cedar City uh, on a pretty amazing uh, development here because this was the first time a major stage race has passed through the gates of a national park. In the 80s, the Coors Classic got in and around Colorado National Monument um, but never really started inside of it. The Tour of Utah itself has skirted the state's five national parks. But this Tour of Utah, again, was the first time the front door of a national park was part of a stage route. Of course, it wasn't easy getting there, as we know, and as we've discussed uh, the, over the past couple shows about you know getting access into federal lands. It can be a real pain in the butt. Right. Race organizers have been talking about a Zion stage, or at least being in the park for a few years, but the national park system wasn't too eager to host lycra-clad men and their caravans, especially in the summer or the high season, and when the tour of Utah initially asked Zion, it said no. At least the national park system did. So the race turned to a friend in high places, Utah Congressman Chris Stewart. And like the two U.S. senators from that state, Lee and Hatch, Stewart is a Republican. Uh, Stewart got the park's director to open up the gates of Zion to the race in the spirit of the national park system's 100th anniversary. Now, the race, and it doesn't end here. I mean, the, the, so now the race is in Zion, and they're going to, they're gonna, you know, at least do part of a stage in Zion, which is a major accomplishment. Yeah. They had, they had been counting on, the race had, the small town of Springdale to help them out. It's close to Zion. Uh, they were going to use Springdale as a starting point for this Zion stage. Mm-hmm. In, our, in the early years of the Tour of Utah, Springdale had expressed interest in hosting its stage. But by the time 2016 rolled around, the town had done a 180 on the Tour of Utah. The retirees of that town, 
had grown tired of the increased attendance in Zion, and they convinced city leadership that there was no longer a need to host a stage. And the Springdale City Council voted against the tour of Utah in its town, going along with its residents that it would just be more of a hassle than they felt it was worth. So that sent the race scrambling again. They had Zion, but now they didn't have a place to start the stage, at least a place that could handle you know, a, 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 uh, a stage race and all the infrastructure that goes along with it. So the Tour of Utah reached out to the tiny, privately owned mall, mall, not town, but a mall, of Zion Canyon Village. And it agreed to have stage one start there. But uh, the Tour of Utah was, was told it had to go on a diet in order to, to start from this, this little village. Less stuff would be able to set up. So the tight quarters in the village, along with the fact that the race would be traveling 12.1 miles through a national park, resulted in some major adjustments to the race, at least for stage one. Here's here's some of the concessions that uh, were listed. Of course, August is traditionally a busy month for the park, so the race had to agree to a 7.55 a.m. start time in order to prevent traffic jams in Zion. Usually stages start around 11 in the morning. Um, the start time required an earlier than normal wake-up call. How about 5 a.m. for a professional racer? It's something that Patrick, you and I are used to for a group ride, but for professional riders, uh, they are still deep in a slumber at that point. Well, and just think about the amount of food that they have to eat before a stage like that. You know, if you're going right. to burn north of 6,000 calories, it takes a little while to eat that much food. And digest yeah. and get ready. <clears throat> uh, the race's uh, television helicopter was forbidden from entering the park. Instead, only fixed cameras were allowed for the broadcast. Um, the route included a 1,500-foot climb. It was deemed, the whole thing, though, was deemed neutral. So riders were prevented actually from attacking on this stage, which doesn't seem like racing. It's just really riding. Uh, the group was limited to a top speed of 15 miles per hour. <laughs> um, some obvious things. I mean, this is obvious, and this, I think, disturbs people even when they're not in a national park. Riders were told, do not throw water bottles or litter, and no stopping to pee in the park. Okay, now one thing I'm not 100% clear on, of the overall length of the stage, you know, how much of that mileage actually came within the national park? 12.1 miles. Oh, well, it, okay, that's nothing. Yeah. I mean... I was beginning to get concerned that, you know, it was like 45 miles. You know, guys are going through bottles at, you know, 15 miles an hour. They don't have anywhere to put them. You know, they can't relieve themselves, you know. But at 12 12 miles an hour, uh, at 12 miles, that's less than an hour at 15 miles an hour. That's not a big deal. You you know, in those opening 12 miles, easily you can have one, if not two attacks or the morning break uh, get established. So th- that all was eventually, uh, uh, actually, essentially eliminated. There was none of that. It was a it was a parade through the park. It really wasn't racing. Sure, but it gave it gave the state and the organizers to showcase the park, which is something they they always wanted to do. Uh, Here are some of the other things that were uh, part of the restrictions. Uh, race photographers were asked not to stand on rocks or touch vegetation. Uh, they were forbidden from stopping to take photos through the two twisting uh, switchbacks, that is, along Zion Mount Carmel Highway. But perhaps the biggest concession involved the famous Zion Mount Carmel Tunnel. It's 1.2 miles long, is built in 1930. It cuts a hole directly through the sandstone walls. It does not have electricity or lights, so it's completely dark in there. The race was forbidden from mounting lights in the tunnel to brighten the road for the peloton. So what management did is mounted high-beam LED lights onto motorcycles, which rode alongside the peloton to uh, light the way. Um, so a lot of stuff, had a lot of hoops to jump through to get a race in a national park. Race organizers were, of course, spinning it towards a positive in the end, that the whole effort was worth it. And even the riders actually seemed okay with the early wake-up call. But it was uh, you know, a long, neutral a ride, a long <laughs> rollout for a beauty shot. Yeah. And more importantly, as we've been discussing, Patrick, in regards to trails um, in national parks, what is an appropriate use of our national parks, forests, wilderness areas 
Does this stuff belong? Do lycra-clad men uh, with uh, with caravans belong in our national parks? Is this? Do, uh, do, does it get your stamp of approval? Well, I think I think this is the wrong question. You know, the thing to consider, and where the real fail in all of this came, is you know, you're going to have this race that's going to have TV time, and. You know, this is a chance to showcase a beautiful place on TV, you know, with a certain degree of movement, you know, and that can spur tourism. And Utah is a place that doesn't live and die by tourism, but it's one of its bigger industries. You know, the ski industry, uh, all the national parks, because it's got multiple national parks there. Um, and so for me, like the the single silliest aspect of all of this is that they didn't allow a TV helicopter. It's like really you're gonna you're yeah. gonna finally do this, and you're not gonna allow a single helicopter through there with a TV camera. Think of the shots they would have gotten. It would have been breathtaking. There's mm-hmm. some stuff that you get, you know, from helicopters in races. You know, just think of some of the footage you've seen in the tour. And the fact that they couldn't get that there almost makes this entire exercise to me sort of pointless. Yeah, you're going to get some good stuff from the motos and you're going to get some good uh, still uh, still imagery. But the fact that they wouldn't allow a TV camera on a helicopter makes this just a, a big missed opportunity. Incidentally, I was part of the first group ride that was ever permitted into Zion way back in 2004, uh, if memory serves. Yeah, 2004, the Skinny Tire Festival was the first time uh, a, uh, a, an organized tour was actually allowed to ride in Zion. And were there restrictions? Did they? Oh, yeah. Did you was... have to obey a speed limit? And No, there was no speed limit, but... You know, we were broken up into smaller groups, not deliberately so, just it was it was sort of like a century where, you know, just a lot of people were riding by themselves and some people hooked up here and there. And then we had a turnaround point before the tunnel. Um, we were riding out of Moab, and so we got to a certain point and turned around. Mm-hmm. Well, I tend to agree. If the, if this is going to be about a beauty shot, then let's have the beauty shot. Uh, if not let's not shut down the race. I mean, that's 12.1 miles lost. Somebody could have established a break, animated the race early on. Um, I think you could race out of a park without too many issues. Uh, Yeah, do you have to clamp down on the race directors and say, don't be chasing with your cars on the shoulder and, you know, doing crazy things. But uh, if it's a beauty shot, let's have our beauty shot. Let's get above it all. Uh, Let's look down on the riders and the beauty of Zion because it is a beautiful spot. Anyhow. So, uh, maybe the national park system too will start to open up. They the national park system has a, a limited number of events it will host, usually small running races um, and bike rides, like you talked about. So this is a major step for for national parks too to to open up their doors or their gates. That is to a legitimate pro bike race. Uh, coming up, Patrick shines a light on a, on a bike maker doing really great work, but maybe not getting the credit for it. And I have a conversation with a company that is standing by a material that is making a a bit of a comeback. That is next on The Pace Line. The Tour of Utah, America's toughest stage race, begins the pursuit of glory in beautiful southern Utah. And as a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, the tour will travel through majestic Zion National Park as a special cycling demonstration recognizing the National Park Service Centennial. Starting at Zion Canyon Village, the park's stunning vistas will set the backdrop for the tour cyclists to promote cycling as a healthy way to enjoy recreating in the great outdoors. Okay, we're back, and I'm back. Uh, I'm just back from uh, a big trip to Southern California. I was down there for a full week, and it began with a visit to Felt in Irvine uh, for the introduction of two new models. Now, Felt has kind of changed how they do things. They've dismissed the whole model year thing, where every year, you know, certain companies will uh, come out with their revisions of existing models. And usually it's like nothing more than new colors. You know, maybe they've changed wheel suppliers, that sort of thing. 
Felt did away with that uh, last year. And so now they only bring the media together and their dealers. uh, Well, the dealers will still go in, I think, annually, but they really only bring the media out when it's time to introduce a new model. And uh, amazingly, they introduced two new road bikes uh, in our visit. And uh, I don't recall another year since that company has been around in which they've introduced uh, two complete new models. So they've had two different engineers working on these for a couple of years now. Uh, The FR is the replacement uh, for the F-Series road bike. So now there will be the FR series. And they also brought out the VR. And uh, this is the bike, much as I love the FR, and I'll get into that, uh, the VR is the bike that I'm really excited about. So traditionally, Felt has had the Z-Series, which was kind of their Fondo slash Century bike, and uh, more recently, the V-Series. And these were their first efforts at kind of gravel models. And they've discontinued both of those in favor of the VR. The VR is a bike that uh, is really aimed uh, at uh, roadies who aren't fancying themselves as racers. So it's uh, a, shall we say, a, uh, a Fondo bike, but with some added versatility. So it's a, a somewhat more comfortable riding frame. Uh, it's got clearance for bigger tires. Uh, it's ISO pr- approved uh, for up to 30 millimeter tires. You can easily get 32s in there and under certain cir- circumstances, probably get 35s. The bike comes with 28s on it. Um, it's disc brake only. Um, and it uses some of the construction techniques found in its very highest end bikes. There will be other less expensive versions of it. But I rode the top of the line uh, VR2, which uses uh, some yeah pretty advanced construction materials um, and uh, techniques. Uh, we went out, rode a bunch of roads, uh, and then took off on the Black Star uh, dirt road climb uh, off of Santiago Canyon um, on what must have been the hottest, humidest day so far this year in Orange County. Um, it was. It was pretty brutal, but um, a fantastic handling bike. I really enjoyed it. And one of the really neat things I found about the bike was that they uh, equipped it with a a pretty wide-range cassette and then went with um, a 90-bolt circle diameter crank so that they could mount 46 and 30-tooth chain rings on the crank, uh, what we might refer to as subcompact. So... What's overall a much lower or significantly lower uh, gearing range. I found myself riding in the big ring for much longer periods of time and, um, you know, able to use uh, more the middle section of the cassette on the steeper climbs. You know, I I don't think I ever got into the 3032 low gear once on that ride, even though we did some some steeper stuff. Just a, a pretty remarkable bike. Um, had great fun with it. And then the FR is, like I said, their replacement for the F-Series. The big thing there is that uh, for the non-disc version of that bike, they've gone to a bottom bracket mounted uh, brake, a direct mount brake. And um, in doing so, they were able to take a lot of material out of the seat stays and remove the seat stay bridge uh, where you would normally mount the brake. And gave, you know, what is an extraordinarily stiff bike, uh, understanding efforts, uh, a much more uh, comfortable demeanor, you know, when seated. It was really a a pretty stunning bike. And and it's funny because I would put uh, the FR1 that I rode against any other standard road bike I've ridden in terms of ride quality, handling, comfort, right there against anything else. And this isn't even the top of the line version of the frame that they're going to do. There will be an FR, FRD. The FRD denotes felt racing development and that gets all their best materials and best construction methods. Mm -hmm. So uh, to have them introduce these two bikes, uh, you know, in a single event was pretty remarkable. They're, they're a company that invests 
really pretty disproportionately in development relative to what they do in terms of advertising and marketing. So, yeah. Yeah, felt both those bikes, by the way, uh, have been written up on Red Kite Prayer, and I actually read both of them. Good articles, nice pictures. I uh, loved the, you know, look, I don't get into the look of a bike very much, but is that a nude car? It had that checkerboard look to it. I love that. I don't know if that was on purpose or if that's just the way the carbon is laid up, but this cool kind of checkerboard look on that on that nude carbon finish. Yeah, so that's Textream, which is a patented material. We've already gotten one comment from a reader saying, "Ah, I don't I don't buy it." I, it just No, it's a very cheap trick. I love it. Uh, <laughs> well, so yeah, there's a Swedish company uh that patented this crazy method of uh creating this weave and the way they do it uh it's not just a an outer cosmetic layer. It's an actual structural layer and it allows you to remove two unidirectional layers uh so it cuts weight by simple fact of the matter that you know you've got one layer where you used to have two and they've got several different formulations of this stuff that you can use and then how you lay it down uh determines you know just where the strength is going to be but you know so not only does it have you know all the strength of you know unidirectional but it also increases uh, the impact resistance of the frame. So if it gets tapped with an Allen wrench, that sort of thing, it's much less likely to cause a crack uh, that will kill a frame. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really neat material. And Felt is the only bicycle manufacturer uh, licensed to work with this stuff. And this is, I believe, their third year working with it. So I keep hearing about this stuff. The first year... Uh, they only had like one or two different versions of the material. Now there are six versions of it. So neat, neat stuff. Mm-hmm. And it looked, again, it looks cool. I think it does. Uh, that. The 4632 on the VR, that again is this uh, kind of this gravel endurance uh, adventure bike. Yeah. Why did Felt choose that ring size over a traditional compact? Well, you know, they simply looked at the sorts of speeds that most people ride and they think, you know, they were thinking about, well, what can we do to give them more low, low end for climbing? Um, you know, you just, you don't hear anybody saying, gosh, this bike just doesn't have enough high end. You know, I'm, I keep spinning out on all my descents or all my, uh, all my sprints. You know, that's not something that consumers are complaining about. But the moment you give them more low end for climbing, everybody loves it. And so the 4630 is a chance to make sure that you're spending more time in the middle of your cassette rather than at the biggest cogs. It gives right. you more choices, you know, just from a standpoint of having, you know, uh, fewer gears on one side and, you know, and more on another. Um, also, you know, your smallest jumps gearing wise tend to come right in the middle of the cassette. That's usually where you're down in the range of, you know, a 7 8% uh, jump between gears as opposed to 10 or 12% the way you can get at the extreme ends of the cassette. So mm-hmm. a big help. Um, you know, I know that not all of the other journalists there were as sold on it as I was. Uh, but when I wrote my open letter to SRAM, Shimano, and Campagnolo uh, this past spring, this is pretty precisely what I was pointing toward that, you know, that they need to do. And, uh, if they'd had a spare crank crank set to send me home with, I would have taken it. I really want this. Right. The older I get, the more I love gears. I mean, I rode up the, uh, going to the sun road in a 3430 and loved it. I mean, I was just in heaven the whole ride up. So now, Regarding felt, uh, first of all, folks may be familiar, well, should be familiar with this this bike company. I mean, currently they're under the the Hincapie team. In fact, they they've won a stage of the Tour of Utah. I yep. think when the Garmin team got going, yeah. um, it was riding felts at the time. So you know they've stuck themselves out there a little bit. Um, but like you said, Patrick, marketing is not their forte. It's not the thing they put first. They're engineers. They're designers. They're manufacturers. They try to make the best bike. Here's my issue. As I was reading your pieces and whenever I looked at their catalog, you told me, you just said, the Z and the V have become the VR and the F has become the FR. 
those names, those model names do not excite me. And I know that sounds kind of shallow. I should look at the spec sheet. I should get excited about, you know, their trail and their BB and their carbon layup and all this. I think, you know, the, one of the things they might be missing here, and you know better than I, because you've, you've been uh, in touch with this company a lot more than I have, is they need to create a little excitement. And it's, I think, as simple as naming their bike something. I mean, you know, when I hear tarmac, I know what that is. I know what I'm getting into there, or Roubaix, <laughs> or Defy, or even TCR for that matter. But VR means wait, nothing wait, to me. Wait, wait, You can't argue that TCR is better than FR. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that one, that one I'll give you. But a Defy yeah. or Roubaix means something to well, me. Well, yeah, I mean, they're actually A VR does not mean anything to me. Um, you know, it, it is certainly a little sexier. And specialized, uh, to their credit, you know, they, they use words that are more evocative than just a couple of letters. So I I can't disagree with you on that. Um, I oh, is it the culture down there? Is this the is this the the, the mind game down there? All about we're gonna put we're gonna put engineering first and just name these things whatever comes to mind. Is is that the culture down there? <sighs> you know, I'm not in a really great place to answer that question. What I can say about the culture of felt is that you know the CEO Bill During was head of product management at GT. So at a certain level, when you look at felt, what you're seeing in terms of the quality of product, uh, particularly on the roadside, you're seeing what GT would otherwise have been doing. Uh, the head of engineering for felt, Jeff Socek, was a young engineer at GT. Bill hired Jeff straight out of college. Uh, if memory serves, Jeff was the first actual engineer they ever had in-house on staff and not something that, you know, uh, you know, an engineer with one of their factories, uh, was, you know, subcontracting to them. So, you know, this is, um, this is the legacy of Richard Long and GT, you know, what they're doing. But the thing is, it's almost as if you took just the product development team, out of GT with none of the other things that GT did. And so, yeah, they don't invest in marketing and advertising uh, the way that GT did. And, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, it, um, it certainly hurts them in some regards. And, you know, I'd love to see them do that a little differently, but you know, they didn't really ask my opinion. <laughs> um, Don't get me wrong. I am rooting for felt. I, I think what they do down there is fantastic. I, I love the fact that they're thinking about the rider and what the rider is getting out of the bicycle first and not how can we push a new line or a new product or how is this model going to sell the following year. I also love their idea of not worrying about model years. A smaller company, Turner, which I, I love, mountain bike company, they, they take the same attitude. Look, we're not going to every year revamp the Turner's R just because the calendar is flipping over. We'll revamp the Turner's R when we're damn good and ready to do it. I, I love that. I do. There's no reason you can't stand behind a bicycle for two years. Right. None at all. If it's a good bike, it is a good bike. And well, and I love then, felt for that. So I am rooting for this that, company. Yeah. And discounting bikes just because your colors are going to change. You know, that doesn't do anybody any good. Not no, only not is it not good for the manufacturer. It, it confuses people about what's happening. Yeah. Well, you and it's keep... bad for the dealer because suddenly they've got this this product that they've got to blow out. And so, yeah, sure, it's it's handy for the consumer who's buying in November. But, you know, the, the dealer gets upset because they've had to discount stuff. They're no, no longer getting their full margin. And now they're getting in the same thing. It's just different colors. So... Right. It was really a pretty terrific move in terms of, you know, strengthening their relationship with their dealers. Mm-hmm. Well, while carbon has been uh, all the rage over recent years, as companies like Felt certainly have emphasized uh, carbon, although they do have some aluminum uh, models too. And, and of course, I have certainly participated in the, the carbon party. Uh, titanium has been, you know, somehow surviving thanks to some uh, committed builders and dedicated customers. Now, my experience on titanium is limited, so recently I tracked down Moots and got on one of their bikes, uh, the Route, spelled R-O-U-T-T. Uh, it's an adventure bike. 
I wrote about that bike uh, for Red Kite Prayer. Thoroughly yeah. enjoyed riding it. Um, found what I was looking for in my little com- carbon kind of titanium comparison. You can read about that on RKP, though. But what I want to get to is I, I spoke with the, the Moots marketing director man- or marketing manager, John Caravu, about their material of choice, titanium, and where it stands today. Here's that talk with John Caravu of Moots. When you and I started talking this morning before our bike ride, we were talking about titanium and where it kind of has fit in the history of materials used to build frames. We all remember steel and aluminum and scandium and titanium came along and everyone seemed to get excited and then bam, carbon. And carbon has kind of taken over the world. What is the state of titanium now? Where does it fit in the marketplace? You know, uh, from our take at Moots, it fits into that uh, consumer that is um, anywhere from you know, a novice rider on up to super serious racer. And we've kind of got models uh, to fit each one of those needs. And the things that have happened to titanium alloys over the years, um, it's progression of thinner tubing, bigger diameter, stiffer, um, have kind of cut down on that stereotypical, hey, a tie bike is super whippy and soft. So the modern day tie bike is really um, you know, head to head, uh, not necessarily going to be as light as carbon ever. Um, but that's not really where it plays in. Uh, ride quality is kind of always that first piece. And that's what we're most concerned about on our bikes. When you, when you market your bikes and talk about them to other people, do you bother with trying to make any type of carbon or steel or a comparison to any other type of frame types, or do you let it stand on its own? Um, you know, there, there definitely are some comparisons we can draw, you know, I always, and we always kind of talk, you know, our roots started in steel. The first years of Moots was steel from 81 to 91. Um, and the best way to describe a nicely made titanium bike these days is it feels a lot like a nice steel bike, um, but it has more backbone to it. It's stiffer, um, it's lighter. Um, but it still offers that really subtle ride quality that, you know, people romanticize about steel frames and where the Tour de France riders came from and those types of things. Um, but now in 2016, 2017, the, the technology of the tubing, the advent of through axles and wireless shifting and disc brakes has really like made the whole package ultra competitive, um, against carbon and you know carbon has its place without a doubt uh it's a beautiful material um it's somewhat of a disposable razor style of the bike industry i like to use that one um it's great for what it is you crash it you get a new one off the team car that's following you you're back in the race Mm -hmm. those guys they could in a lot of ways care less what they're riding um so Ty, I think, fits in there to that con- consumer that is really after the fine craftsmanship that really comes through in a nice Thai bike, and, and that's where we're at. And with the emergence of adventure riding and what some people call gravel riding, do you feel like you have something to offer that maybe the other materials don't? Do you feel like titanium is, is the material for this style of riding? You know, it really is, and you know, it's so durable. Um, and our processes at Moots um, have gotten so dialed since 1991, that was our, the first year of our first tie bike, um, that we are very confident that this bike can take you into the far reaches of wherever you might be. Um, it's not going to break, it's not going to crack. We've got replaceable derailleur hangers and serviceable parts like that. And it really can take a beating year after year. I mean, it's you can crash it, you can lose it off the top of your car in some cases and keep riding the thing. Um, so really, it, it, I think another piece that needs to be talked about maybe a little bit with tie is the value. So we're looking at tie frames from Moots that can retail from 3,500 to 4,500 bucks for the frame. Right. You can do the same thing with a carbon bike. You can walk into any shop in the country and drop 12 grand on a fully fitted bike. And 
that is something I think people kind of need to be aware of is you're going to invest a good chunk of money in a nice bike and a tie bike is something you literally could have decades later Um, replace the parts service it all that good stuff and you're still going to have the same frame have you if you could look or see five years down the road where would you see titanium bikes fitting in um i think it's still going to be in that area of people that have maybe gone through a couple of different materials they've had steel bikes they went through aluminum they've had carbon um and they make their choice based on a material and how much value it holds and what kind of a lifespan it can get and i think people these days are a little more aware globally of the impact of hey it takes a lot of energy to build a bike whether it's carbon steel aluminum tie why not make one that lasts a really long time Uh, the energy is the same across the board that you're consuming to build that and we really we kind of like that that we're giving this value um, to the consumer in a finely crafted bike that rides like nothing else they've had um, and it, it really uh, bodes well I think for Ty I think the future is bright it's you kind of see it with the number of small shops small brands getting into the titanium custom game mm-hmm. and that's a huge um that leaves a huge impression on us you know there's there's more builders out there that that kind of want to get into it and with uh the the possibilities of being able to customize it hand select tube diameters wall thickness and really fine-tune that ride it's it's a wonderful material john thanks a lot for being on the pace line yeah thanks for having me Again, that was John uh, Caravu, uh, marketing director with Moots out of Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Patrick, when I first met you, you were on a 7 Axiom, I think it was, titanium, and you continue to own and ride uh, titanium bikes. Why should someone choose this material over the others? (laughs) How long do we have? Um, uh, Oh, man, I'm such a fan of Thai bikes. I've had uh, a Thai mountain bike. You know, yeah, I had that uh, seven Axiom. That was the first review that they ever got. And I had that bike for something like 14 years. Um, No, it was even longer. Um, And I'm on another seven now, the Earhart. Mm -hmm. And for me, the attraction of Ty is ride quality. That's a big, big piece of it. Um, Also, the ability to have custom geometry and custom fit. And those are two different things. You know, some builders will only build around a particular geometry. They'll just do it to your fit. And in working with some manufacturers, you know, uh, I, I love Seven a lot in this regard. You know, you can have a conversation about the handling of the bike, you know, the actual geo. Um, and then they'll figure out, you know, what your fit should be. And uh, those are two independent processes. And... You know, it's uh, you've got a lot of flexibility when you're working with someone who builds in tie. And uh, my conversation previously, uh, one of my conversations previously with Rob Vandermark, the CEO of Seven, uh, he talked about how you know he's actually seeing a swing back toward titanium uh, rather than away from it. And uh, what they keep hearing from consumers is that they're just tired of broken bikes. You know, they want something that's going to last. And, um, you know, it's, uh, to kill a titanium bike is really, really hard. And, uh, you know, of the many people who have worked in titanium over the years, um, there are a handful of builders who've had just stellar reputations for, you know, making bikes that are incredibly durable. Um, and Moots is certainly one of them. Uh, I've reviewed one of their bikes in the past and, done some short rides on some other uh, bikes of theirs. Those guys do just amazing work. And we ran into the head of Moots um, recently who told us, I think they're down to like a a four-week turnaround on their custom bikes, which is pretty amazing when you're drawing up, you know, when you're cutting tubes for a customer and getting something out to them. A lot of of the custom builds are taking, what, a year or who knows when you'll get the bike, but Moots has made a concerted effort towards uh, shortening that turnaround time to get customers on bikes 
um, as quick, so they don't have to wait so long for them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, great, uh, great stuff from Moots. Again, I rode the the route R U R O U T T, um, an adventure bike. Uh, and look, if you're a traveler, if you pack a bike in a case, a lot, um, and put them on airplanes, titanium is not a bad way to go because uh, our baggage handlers have a little tougher time breaking uh, that frame than they would your your favorite carbon model. So yeah. again, t- titanium, um, a good choice t- to look at. Uh, not cheap, but good and strong and will last you a very, very long time. Again, read my review of the route uh, on RKP if you're interested more on that, that particular model. Well, folks, uh, place your bets. Uh, bike mechanics will be having a competition in Las Vegas. We'll tell you about that next on the Pace Line. Uh, today, I'm going to show you how to um, wrap handlebar tape. Uh, I'm going to give you a little, few little tips to start off when we're doing the bar tape. Um, use this just to get the brake cable and the gear cables just tight to the handlebar, um, just to make it look clean. Then start the bar taping. You always ravel inside. Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Patrick Brady of Red Kite Prayer. Michael Houghton here. We are missing Fatty, fatcyclist.com. Uh, still in Ireland. Tried to get him back, um, but uh, we expect to have him back next week. So, Fatty, come on back to the show. We do miss you. Come back. Interbike, Patrick. Interbike, a place you and I love to go because we love to gawk. We love the stuff. We love the bike porn. Interbike is adding a, a new show feature. The Interbike Mechanics Challenge, presented by... Who else? Park Tool. Yeah. Uh, staffing and judging uh, of this challenge will be uh, from members of the newly formed Professional Bicycle Mechanics Association. That's the association we talked about here on the Pace Line. They're trying to you know, do things for bike mechanics, like help them get health insurance, help raise their wages, uh, yeah. help certify them better. So they'll handle the judging of this competition. The competition will test mechanics' ability to complete several tasks they perform on a regular basis as quickly as possible, but with a twist. There will be equalizers that will be put in place at each of the four stations during the qualifying rounds and presumably during the the finals as well. Participants with the lowest times in the qualifying rounds will advance to the final rounds, and the winner will be declared Interbike Master Wrench. Uh, Interbike and the Mechanics Association have not revealed the challenges themselves that the mechanics will face because they don't want mechanics practicing them before they go to Interbike. So, we thought we'd come up with at least a few of our own. And, uh, Patrick, since you have experience as a bike mechanic, yep. and we can get in your resume if you'd like, <laughs> why don't you go first? What would be, if you were dreaming up this contest, what would be your your challenges for mechanics to complete and and if you can put a twist in there too oh gosh well i I don't know about a twist i mean i just know the sorts of things that i encountered in the past you know like the fastest flat change you know you want to you want a wrinkle on that um then you do a bike with a coaster brake you know rear wheel flat on a bike with a coaster brake because that way you got to disconnect the arm and before you get the bike uh the wheel out um you know, flat, flat changes. That's a a mainstay of mechanics competitions. Uh, when people want to have a chance to get a couple of beers in them as they're watching something, then you do a build off, you know, the fastest build of a bike out of a box. Um, Mm. for reasons I can't begin to explain when I was working at the peddler in Memphis, uh, we would actually kind of unofficially race each other to see who could build bikes fastest. I was always one of the fastest. Um, most bikes I could get done in r- around an hour, but there was one guy who was consistently, you know, three or four minutes faster than me. So I, I was not the Strava KOM of building bikes. <laughs> um, you know, the uh, one of the others is just a wheel change. Um, you know, and that's because in race situations, how quickly you get a wheel changed can uh, can really affect 
the racers race, you know, their ability to get back to the pack, um, at nationals one year, junior national championships, uh, a guy who went on to a great pro career with Saturn, Seth Pelosi, uh, Pelosi, sorry. Um, he flatted out of the break. I did a 13 second rear wheel change, got him back into the break. Also nice. pushed him so hard. I almost fell down. <laughs> That's part of it. I love it when the, when the mechanics or the staff get behind the right, they push him so hard and they're, they're just stumbling as the rider gets way back into the break. That that's always a, a great sight. That shows real commitment uh, yeah, on those good guys. stuff. And they do. They're they're committed to this. Um, so here are my uh, three challenges that I came up with for uh, the mechanics competition in Las Vegas at Interbike this year. Uh, first, the obvious, and you you brought this up too, Patrick. Fix a flat, uh, a simple tube replacement. I don't need to see any patch job here. But here's the twist: do it without tire levers <laughs> and this can be difficult if we're talking maybe some tubeless models oh i'm uh, thinking victoria tires yeah, yeah. hopefully you have a tire yeah. <laughs> hopefully you have a cotton open tubular and you can just grab it with your hand and get it off but there are some of those tires that are pretty difficult to do without a tire lever so that's uh, number one here's another one diagnose and fix a creaky bottom bracket the equalizer do so while the customer is looking over your shoulder and bragging about their recent Strava KOMs. <laughs> now, the creaky bottom bracket, I'm sure, drives wrenches just up the wall. I mean, getting to the bottom of this thing, no pun intended, uh, sometimes the customer doesn't even know if it is the PB or not. Uh, the best is when you figure out, oh, it was the cleats. Right. I mean, I was just going to say, <laughs> pedal, cleat, crank arm, loose pedal. Loose cassette. I mean, it could be a number of things. Dirt. <laughs> yeah. So, and then you've got the the customer standing around explaining, uh, "Oh, I uh, just been listening to this creek, and I was trying to, you know, Strava my uh, latest KOM, and you know, and the guy's trying to, you know, hear for the little the creek that the customer's hearing." Um, number three. Here's a third one. Replace a broken shift cable. The twist is, uh, the customer has completely removed that cable. The bike is internally routed and has no cable shift guides. Then, <laughs> do the whole job one-handed. <laughs> oh, internal routing. Oh, P- Patrick, when you look at bikes now, is there something you see out there you go, man, I'm glad I don't have to fix that? Is, is there anything out there right now you go, oof, that is just a job that's too much? You mean like the specialized tarmac? What about it? <laughs> well, the internal routing on it. Um, oh. You know, I one of the things when I'm reviewing a bike, I love building it up. I love pulling it out of the box and taking the time to build it up. And, you know, it gives me a chance to learn certain things about the bike, really look it over carefully. Um, oftentimes, it gives me a chance to actually weigh the frame so that I know whether or not the manufacturer's uh, marketing department is blowing smoke or if they're not even smoking. Um, you know, Specialized doesn't even talk about frame weights anymore. And mm-hmm. so having a chance to actually weigh that frame prior to it being built, um, that's a neat thing. I don't have the time to be able to completely tear a bike down uh, and then weigh the frame and build it back up. There's just too much other work to get done and because also little people but um when i when i went from the tarmac sl3 to the tarmac sl4 and they shipped that bike to me there were all these crazy additional ferrules and little sub cable guides and whatnot for the internal routing building that bike up took me six hours it was the longest slowest uh, build of my entire career. And I mentioned, you know, that that took a long time in the course of my review saying, Hey, look, you know, just be aware when you go to this bike, your labor rates are going to be higher. You're going to pay more to have a mechanic work on this bike because it's that much more complicated. Hmm. Well, one of the guys in their global marketing team got really upset with me for that, and uh, they've never shipped me another unbuilt box uh, bike <laughs> since. You know, no no bike in a box since then. Um, okay, they- I'll balance it out. Specialized. <laughs> Here we go, Specialized. Okay. Listen up. I recently redid the cables on my Roubaix SL4, and it went smoothly. Now, I consulted a Specialized dealer first, 
and went to them and said, what do I need to know? And they said, just this and that. And they kind of pointed me in the right direction. And so I was able to nail it. Now, that's different than building a bike from scratch when there's nothing there to, to work off of. I mean, at least I had kind of a blueprint. You know, I had a schematic because the cables were already in. Everything was in place. I, could, I took pictures. I, I do that. Sometimes I'll take pictures of how things are routed and how cables are crossed, and I did that. Yeah, genius. So I was able to kind of navigate that way. So there you go, specialize. A little, a little balance on that. Yeah, I mean, it works. Uh, you know, I, something else I will say, though, um, externally routed cables in many instances, uh, particularly with derailers now I'm talking, um, actually shift better. You know, yeah, um, cleaner, easier to clean the bike. Um, the cables seem to to put up with more grit and dirt and mess if you're into that type of riding. So I don't envy. Again, back to the mechanics. I mean, I look at these guys and they're doing an internally routed TT bike these days, and I go, wow. You know, I look at some of these machines and go, ugh. I'm glad I'm not you right now. Um, but they'll have a chance to showcase their skills. In the uh, interbike uh, mechanics mechanics challenge, you know I'm not much of a wrench myself, Patrick. But I'll have to say this podcast right now is being held together by a stem bolt, and only because I showed some mechanical prowess, which I generally don't possess. I mean, I am a failed auto mechanic. I actually tried to get into this business, but I broke so much stuff that the owner of the shop, the poor guy, had to just let me go. <laughs> but this podcast right now is being held by a, together by a stem bolt. Yesterday, I broke my microphone mount, and uh, actually, the, the nut inside snapped off, and I was able to to remove that bolt uh, thanks to my father in law's uh, trusty needle nose uh, pliers. And I found a stem bolt on my uh, my workbench, and it fit nicely. And so now my mic is being held in place by an old stem bolt, and that is a mechanics challenge. With a twist, if I do say so myself. I don't know what award I get. I don't know if Interbike will be wanting to honor me when I'm there. But there's my challenge. Ah. Well, um, that's going to do it for this edition of The Pace Line, I think. We've kind of worked everything out. Not bad for a two-man uh, breakaway. Patrick, yeah. uh, RKP, keeping a high pace these days. What's going on on the site? Uh, well, I've got a couple more things coming out of the Mozzie weekend. Uh, I actually got to go for a ride with Breaking Away star Dennis Christopher, one Dave Stoller. Um, it was not something I was expecting was going to happen, but uh, uh, he was doing a little e-bike ride to kind of lead us out uh, from a charity ride on Sunday morning. And just the way circumstances worked out, I wanted to get a picture of him riding his bike. And pretty soon, the entire bunch had sprinted away, and it was just me and him and a couple other people kind of attached to the situation. And so we got to ride through North County, San Diego, and chat. And if that wasn't one of the greatest bike rides of my life, I haven't been alive. Mm-hmm. It, it was a pretty remarkable experience. So... uh I'll be writing about that, and then also uh, I'm working on transcribing the Q and A that happened uh, post uh, post the showing of Breaking Away. Mm-hmm. So some fun stuff, different stuff coming. Mm-hmm. And we've we're going to allot some time to Patrick uh, ne- next show, at least uh, should be next show about uh, his uh, his brush with greatness and the star from Breaking Away, which hopefully all of us have seen. Um, so we're going to do a little uh, segment on that in the next edition of The Pace Line. Uh, Fatty is not here, of course, but he and I are off to Leadville. Um, Fatty has been, of course, running a fundraiser on FatCyclist.com connected to Leadville. He is collecting donations and allowing followers to vote on what his goal should be at Leadville this year. Should he ride a geared bike, single speed, or ride for his wife, the Hammer? Now, overwhelmingly, followers have favored the ride for the hammer option, uh, but it's not too late to vote and donate. And the good news is that the donations will benefit a favorite cause of fatties and ours, and that is the high school mountain bike organization known as NICA or NICA. It's NICA, right? With NICA. Long yeah. NICA, yes. Um, so good cause there that Fatty is doing, and we wanted to plug that for him in his absence. Um, so go on over to fatcyclist.com. 
um, check out uh, the little fatty fundraising operation he has going on there and, and vote for something and give money, please. Uh, Paceline can be found on the pages of redkiteprayer.com. Also a good place to find show links and leave a comment. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Music. Subscribe to us and rate us uh, at those places. At Paceline Podcast is our Twitter handle if you still can't get enough of us. All right? Good. Uh, hopefully we'll talk to you folks from uh, Leadville, at least uh, Fatty and I will. Patrick, you'll be in your usual spot. Yeah, far, uh, far away from the elevation. Thank you. No, 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 no. We're going to get you there someday. Promise. <laughs> so for Fatty and Patrick, I'm Michael Houghton. We will talk to you next time, hopefully from Colorado on the Pace Line. Somebody, whatever your reason is, good luck. Be safe and we'll see you down here at the